Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Seven Deadly Sinners early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Apple Podcasts. You're listening to a Morbid Network podcast. This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. All the previous cases that I've been involved with, where the situation is like this here, it's, it's, it's always been a recovery. It's never been a please God, please a happy God, ending. Bring her home. We will start to question whether a memory is real or false only when that element of memory or that. Why did his father leave him in a ditch in the middle of nowhere, then lie about it and disappear? From eye scrapings and evasive nose probings to incisions in the skin, John of God has performed countless unlicensed surgical procedures, seemingly with no anesthesia on enraptured followers. Welcome back to another episode of Seven Deadly Sinners, the first episode of season four. And like I said last episode, you guys came through with some incredible case suggestions, and this season is going to be heavily based on your hometown stories, your suggestions, like I said, and that's super exciting. In fact, I just got a text today from a new friend I met through a stand-up show I did in Michigan in like February, 2020, whose family member was sadly the victim of one of the most famous unsolved cases in recent history. Now, I didn't know this about her until literally today. She listened to part of the Franklin scandal where I mentioned the Oakland County child killer and messaged me and was like, that's my uh, grandma's sister. And uh, I was completely blown away. And this was like an hour before I'm recording right now. And I stopped and I was like, I have to hear all about this. Uh, I can't record. (laughs) But I did have to move on because I already wrote this one. But... We will definitely be at the very least hearing from her for a listener stories episode, but she also sparked my interest to investigate deeper and do entire coverage on it. We shall see. I don't know. She's bringing a recording device to interview the sibling of the murder victim tomorrow, which would be her grandma. So I hope that I can be of service with shining a light on their case if it all works out. Okay, 
Now for the first case for season four. I got interested in this case for two reasons. One, I was in a restaurant in Colorado working on my computer and the waitress asked what I was doing. I explained that I had a true crime podcast and I asked her if she had any like tips on any crazy local cults or anything. And she responded that she's fascinated with the Amish community in Westcliff a couple hours away. I was like, interesting. And I had some free time, so I drove there. And by the way, this is a gorgeous, picturesque little town. I swear, it could be like on a postcard. So anyway, I talked to a few locals about the Amish community there. And some of them told me that I really need to go hang out at the local pubs at night because the old timers are the ones to talk to. They have the really crazy stories about them. I didn't have the time for that because I had dinner back at home and we had planned. So one funny anecdote I did get though. So I went into a liquor store in town to buy wine for our dinner later. And I started talking to the guys that worked there. And then they started telling me a bunch of stories. But the one that I found the most ridiculous is that, you know, like the Amish aren't supposed to drink. They ride around in buggies, you know, very pure. Is that Amish men come into their liquor store weekly, if not daily, and buy liquor and then ask to be escorted out the back so no one will see them with the booze. I just thought it was like, okay, buddy, you know, I get it, but like, don't preach it, friend. You know, you're clearly not perfect. I just feel like these Amish are a wild bunch, so they must have more secrets than that. So that, coupled with the fact that my family members, so my dad comes from a family of uh, seven, seven siblings. No, he's one of seven, sorry. So it's seven total. And one of his sisters and her husband and their, I don't know, six kids. I have, I'm an Irish Catholic family and Italian Catholic. There's a shitload of kids. Anyways, let's call it six. I don't want to do the math on the microphone right now. So they went Amish at a certain point, I think before I was born. Because I only knew them as that until they weren't. Um, and I had never, never met them. Because before I was born, they went and they moved to a place in Pennsylvania called Bruderhof. Which I'd never really looked into. And I googled it while I was like writing this. And Bruderhof is considered a cult. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's Amish. It's Amishy. It's the same type of vibe. But anyways. So I was like... I got to do something on the Amish. This is crazy. So that's where the interest came. And now to the story. And I'll talk more about like, I got some more insight now that I realized that once I heard this whole story and researched it, I was like, oh, that's why my cousin did that. Uh, that makes sense. Anywho, but based on my interaction with the men that worked at the liquor store, the Amish are a mysterious bunch. You know, they project old world purity, a bygone time, a nostalgia that tourists even flock to see. Tourists might be drawn to them, though, because of the simple way of life they Amish live. You know, it's family over quick function. No cell phones and social media. They wear modest clothing. Almost the same thing every day. There's no calling ahead to see what to wear to the party. You just wear your standard humble attire. You farm your food. You cook it from scratch, which 
I can only imagine makes you appreciate every morsel. There's a magical draw the Amish have. They are a group of people that have chosen to essentially go back in time and live without the amenities we have become so reliant on. But like every culture, society, religion, human nature is human nature. Every walk of life comes with the same quirks and kinks, desires and addictions, joy and sorrow. What I'm trying to say is that you can't shelter away mistakes, sin, and evil even out of a person. Sure, you can give a child a conservative, pious upbringing, and that may work for many kids. But for some, it's only a rubber wall to bounce off of, unable to fit into the ideals because they are simply born to break the mold. They're born different. And in the best of cases, it's inspiring to hear about. The outsider breaks away and makes good on their own. But in the worst of cases, like today's story, it's a testament to the fact that some people are just bad. This story has been covered a bit, but I was so fascinated by the psychology and motive behind Eli Stutzman's life and crimes that I wanted to go a little bit deeper. It seems people were incredibly disposable to him. And I'd like to say that he escalated, but his first quote-unquote murder was one of the ultimate extremes. I say that because all of the murders from then until the worst of the worst you could possibly do are still heartbreaking and important, but the last one is devastating. And several of these he was never convicted of. It's an incredibly frustrating story. But additionally for me, it was the smug way he lived his daily life. He used people for every last drop. He'd get their hopes up. He'd use his own son as a pawn, a tool. And yet, the man never really showed a shred of emotion. This is the Amish serial killer. So let's imagine. You're a young man, growing up Amish. But you know you're different. Not what they want. You're a rebel. But not in the way of, like, stealing the neighbor's chicken egg or winking at a cute girl. You're cunning. And you're restless. Sure, you can get the girl. As Eli Stutzman, the subject of this case, has been essentially called Amish royalty gorgeous. But your mind is elsewhere. You'd rather sneak off with the muscular stable boy. But you're torn. You grew up in an environment where... Turning on a light bulb was a slap in God's face. So being publicly gay was certainly out of the question. So you bury it. Hide it away. Manipulate and mold the world around you to keep your secret hidden. But your outside lifestyle alive. And for today's sin, by the end of this case, I think you might agree that Eli fits the mold of sloth. As we know, sloth can mean many things. What first comes to mind to me is just like lazy or 
like a self-indulgent couch layer and a non-contributor, but the scope of sloth is wide. In religious circles, sloth is skirting your religious duties, not attending church, not giving back, but it goes deeper and affects the religious and non-religious alike. It can fall into the category of acidia, which is a lack of any feeling about self or others. Well, technically Eli values self, but not others. Regardless of this, others are not a big interest of his. Anyway, it's a mind state that gives rise to boredom and apathy. Physically, acedia is fundamentally associated with an indifference to work. And that was really not a huge interest of Eli's. So that makes sense. It's a sense of idleness and doing whatever you want, essentially. Sloth has also been defined as a failure to do things that one should do. By this definition, evil exists when good people fail to act. They say sloth is a sin of omitting responsibilities. But in our case, it wasn't just omitting or ignoring responsibilities. It was making them go away forever so that you never had to think about them again. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Whether you hydrate to live or live to hydrate, Liquid IV quenches your thirst faster than water alone. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness, all in a single sugar-free stick. Liquid IV is perfect for daily use before a workout, when you feel run down, after a long night out, or on long flights. Basically, anytime you need a pick-me-up, however you hydrate. Grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free in bulk nationwide at Costco, or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code WONDERY at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today, using promo code WONDERY at liquidiv.com. A sloth-like person might be so set in their ways that they lack feeling for the people around them, the world, or their own self-care. And I'm not just talking about basic hygiene for oneself. I'm talking about fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants risky behavior that affects you and everyone around you. And you might even extend into, well, when you muster up the energy to make the people in your way disappear. Why did his father leave him in a ditch in the middle of nowhere, then lie about it, and disappear? I think that uh, the Amish are afraid of revenge, that when he comes out, gets out, that he's going to come back here and uh, harm them. Three Christmases ago, the people of Chester, Nebraska, found the unidentified body of a young boy in a ditch, abandoned and left to freeze. He was clad only in blue pajamas, and the town called him Little Boy Blue. This was supposedly the sort of crime that couldn't happen in Chester, the kind of place where the tallest buildings around are grain elevators. But Little Boy Blue's death not only touched a nerve, it opened a Pandora's box of questions about other deaths. Deaths that span three states and eight years. He has been associated with other deaths then, makes one wonder. 
should we blow it, you know? Should we let him get away with something? The story I got uh, was that he was having uh, parties uh, with all men around there and uh, smoking marijuana, drinking beer, and uh, when we got into this bar, uh, there's guys in there dancing and girls in there dancing with each other. And I was just, that's just dumbfounded. Guys dancing with guys? Yeah. And uh, so, so Eli brought you to a gay bar? Right. Eli was interviewed in the middle of June concerning uh, the death of his roommate. And uh, shortly after the interview, he left the Austin area. The uh, cause of death was a single gunshot, a small caliber to the head. So let's take ourselves to the gorgeous plains of Ohio now. Apple Creek, to be exact. It's quaint and stunning. The Amish people are hardworking and dedicated to their faith. One prominent family, the Stutzmans, are not only a part of the Amish community here, but the patriarch, Abe Stutzman, is a clan's bishop, the head of their religious and community order. An order that even among the Amish is considered to be the most strict and conservative and old world as it comes. Now, I got this description from multiple Amish info sites such as Amish America, Ohio Amish Country, and Amish Country Insider. So this isn't my opinion of the way their homes look, but it seems like good descriptions. So, Eli Stutzman was from the Schwarzentruber Amish. They do life as they did in the 1800s. There's no bathrooms, no running water, no gas lights, no solar power, no modern conveniences. And they make very few exceptions for anything. Like their buggies can't be closed up like other orders buggies can be. They don't have tractors for transportation or even to help them with farm work. Schwartz and Trooper Amish emphasize tradition and they resist change more than the majority of Amish groups. They are among the most restrictive when it comes to the use of technology as well. They do not permit automobile travel, except in emergencies. They do not have in-home plumbing or hot water. Outhouses are used, and bathing is less frequent. Their homes typically have a rough appearance with peeling paint, dirt driveways, and lacking flower beds and manicured lawns common to higher-order Amish. Perhaps the easiest way to tell a Schwarzentruber church member is by their carriages. Their buggies do not carry the SMV triangle, reflecting Schwarzentruber beliefs against worldly symbols and emphasis on reliance to God. Their buggies also use limited reflective tape and lamp lighting, in contrast to the often very illuminated Old Order Amish buggies. Some higher-order Amish criticize them for their resistance to adopting safety symbols. Their buggies also lack windshields, mirrors, or electric lighting. Schwarzentruber restrictions on technology also affect the ways they can make a living and the level of income they can earn. Their businesses are limited to the technology they can use. Builders are forbidden from using cars, which limits their range. And now, most farms in the area, so I'm going off script here. I'm 
not going to say Schwartz and Truber as much as I possibly can at this point. But I read this somewhere else. So most farms have lightning rods, for example, like on their barns. You know, that's a simple convenience. It's not freaking TikTok, right? But the Amish refuse to use these rods. And they even refuse to use things like insurance. They feel that such precautions interfere with God's will. Which will kind of play into our case today. They just lead a more plain and more restricted life than other Amish. I'm talking about the... I'm tired of saying Schwarzenberg. You get it. The strict ones. <laughs> they even rarely go, quote-unquote, to an English doctor. Now, English is just a term they use for everyone outside their community. They prefer to use traditional remedies. And due to generally lower income and larger families, they may rely on cheaper food products and have a less healthy diet compared to other Amish. Their church services drag on a bit longer than most Amish, this website really seems like it doesn't like the Schwartz and Trooper group. I knew I wasn't going to say that again, but this is all from one. It just seems like there's a bit of a beef here. Anyways, they sing slower and are considered to be, they're considered to be pretty boring. I summarized because I was tired of the, I mean, they're just throwing shade. They tend to be less fond of sports and other worldly amusements. And I think this is actually why, okay, so that first part, was taken from this website. But when I read that, I was like, I think this is why my cousin was actually first allowed to leave his Amish type group because he went to public school for a hot second while he was still in his Amish group. Could have been during his rumspringa. You'll learn about that momentarily. But anyway, he was showing incredibly skill as a uh, incredibly like athletic skill as a football player. In the time that he was allowed to go to public school, I guess, briefly, in his Amish community. And colleges were trying to recruit him. And so he must have made a good pitch to his parents. And he was allowed to leave first of the family members. And then he went to public school out in Oregon, where I'm from. And then he ended up getting picked up by a D1 college to play football. So that makes sense to me that, like, they're not into sports and such. Uh, and he must have gotten a good opportunity, which good for him. And then the rest of the rest of the family, like eventually followed. And I would say my, I, I think my cousins pe seemed pretty normal when they were in the outside world. Like, I mean, they adapted. To, yeah, they didn't, they didn't seem like they didn't understand the ways of the world, but they must have experienced some stuff that just was, because they were on. So when I Googled, their Amish cult, it was, it's Bruderhof. It came up as a cult. I, I, I don't know. I got I to look more into this. Now I'm fascinated. I got to get in touch with the cousins I haven't talked to in, I don't know, 10 years. Any who's will be. Okay, enough about me. So, but that all make, made sense though. That they're like sports are shunned and it was he was showing great athleticism and he just had to leave if he was going to like have a future in sports. So, the other thing about the very strict Amish that Eli Stutzman grew up in, they were also really known for their wildness. The kids were, because they were criticized for partying all the time, and they were just more wild. And maybe it was because of or despite the fact that it was more strict, but 
they were more wild than the other Amish group's kids. And that might be, I don't know, why Eli Stutzman ended up the way he was, but eh, I don't think so. I think it contributed, but you'll, you'll make the choice yourself. So his story is a story we may never know the full truth about. But after a ton of research and reading Greg Olson's book, Abandoned Prayers, which goes in-depth into Eli's day-to-day interactions and how he treated people, I feel like I have a good sense of this man. Eli was going to do what Eli wanted to do, and no one was going to get in the way of that. So who is Eli Stutzman? Well, he was born in Apple Creek, Ohio on September 28, 1950, to parents Eli, his dad, and Susan Stutzman. In order to differentiate the Amish, they use middle initials like Eli L, Eli A, Eli I Want Electricity, you get the point. But because there's so many people that share the same name, it's to distinguish the men all sharing that. So you get that. But because his father's only going to be mentioned briefly, you'll know when I'm talking about Eli Stutzman, the main character. So Eli was the fourth born of 13 children. They were extremely traditional and the pressure was only exacerbated by Eli's dad being the bishop of his order and the minister of their church. So imagine being an extremely conservative Amish group and then your dad's also the bishop. Oof. So all eyes are on the Stutzmans. And Eli was almost from the jump a mischievous kid. He would pawn off his household chores and farm responsibilities. He'd break a rule and then point the finger elsewhere. But his parents saw right through it. They knew from an early age their son was a habitual liar. But in a way, Eli also knew how to charm. He has been described as very good-looking with piercing blue eyes and strong features. And though of average height, his build has been described as muscular and compact. His rebellious nature and good looks caught the attention of many Amish girls. The more modern Amish practiced something called bundling. And this was actually one thing the restrictive Schutzentroopers also allowed. Though Eli said later it was all ridiculous and that teens were having sex all the time and bundling did nothing to stop them. Who knows? So take everything he says with a grain of salt because he lies a lot. But the act of bundling is basically lying in bed with the person you're courting, fully clothed, and sometimes even with a board between the couple. But even the plywood and hand-sewn garments were sometimes seen as too scandalous, and some girls were, and of course it's just the girls, were targeted for bundling too hard. That's so annoying. Well, the bundle bandit, Eli, was an attention grabber with the ladies, and his years of humping plywood, or going further probably, were just a precursor to a life of unprotected one-night stands. He was a hot ticket, and he used it. But it's a tale as old as time. Some girls liked the bad boy, and they liked that he was different. Sadly, they didn't know that his interest in them back then was merely a front, a stopover to who he really was. While innocently courting girls at singing sessions... 
singing sessions are essentially, okay, let's just picture it's like a karaoke night at your favorite bar, but it's in a barn and they sing a cappella about the Lord and it's supervised by adults and there's no booze. Same thing. It was at a singing session that Eli Stutzman met 16-year-old Ida Gingrich. For Ida, the attraction was immediate. According to Greg Olson's book, Abandoned Prayers, quote, she got the feeling, she later told her sister, that Stutzman liked her too. The daughter of Amos and Lizzie Gingrich, Ida was a beautiful girl with wide-set hazel eyes. When she laughed, dimples creased her cheeks, her ash-blonde hair was thick with a slight wave, but no one outside her family knew that. She wore it like all the other Schwartz and Trooper girls. Rolled under, pulled back, and tucked under a bonnet. It was written in the Bible that only her husband could see the glory of her hair. And for Ida, that could be Eli Stutzman. Eli and Ida dated for the next four years. Everyone assumed that marriage was coming very, very soon. In fact, they both confessed their sins and committed to the church together. But in the midst of their courtship, Eli, under the constant watchful eye and pressure from his father, left the home and moved in with another Amish family. Mose and Ida Keem, leaving Ida completely confused and abandoned. But she held faith. While Eli was living with the Keems, his father would still come and visit and check on his son's progress and discipline, and he would request his son comes back home and lives with his family, but Eli refused. Not long after, the pressure became too much for Eli, and he collapsed and had a panic attack of sorts. From there, he lay in bed depressed and just in a state of confusion for days until, which in only emergencies, this happens, the family called a doctor. When the doctor saw Eli, he was still very distraught, bedridden, and the doctor ordered that he stayed in bed until he recovered. And Eli also told him he was suffering from nerve pain. It's not clear exactly what his condition was. And as we'll see later, stress almost debilitates Eli in certain tragedies, but as his crimes escalate, he also seems cooler than a cucumber in certain... He's a very hard read. Regardless, shortly after his collapse and bedridden state, according to Greg Olson's book, quote, there was more. One day, shortly after the collapse on the stairs, Keem found Stutzman crying in the barn. When he asked him what was wrong, Stutzman told him that ever since the breakdown, he had had a constant erection that was both painful and embarrassing. Keem didn't know what to do to help the young man. He considered asking the doctor about it, but dismissed it as too private of a matter. It seemed to go on for months, Keem later recalled. Somehow that breakdown affected his sex. It was about that time that Keem and his wife discovered several notes that Stutzman had written on scraps of paper and left in his bedroom. The words written in English included references to Satan and hell. Keem and his wife wondered if he had left them there for their benefit, and if so, why? 
Well, then Eli cut his hair, shaved his beard. He outfitted his buggy with bedazzlement and flair. They don't say exactly what the bedazzlement and flair was, and no one actually used those words. Those are mine. But, like, just picture it. Maybe he hung on a rabbit's foot or, like, Mardi Gras beads from the rearview mirror. Or maybe he got a bumper sticker that said, Thomas Edison is my homeboy. We don't know. Regardless, his father caught wind of his scandalous behavior, and he was so embarrassed that he could not control his son that he felt certain that his son needed to be controlled by someone other than him. So he removed him from the Keem's house and had him admitted to a hospital for mental evaluation. The Keems were confused, but days later, Eli emerged from the hospital and returned to their farm, asking to stay there again. It didn't last long, though, and Keems were frankly grateful at this point because Eli was just getting stranger. He was too much to handle. It was around this time Eli decided to leave the church, too. It wasn't necessarily a formal rumspringa, which is the practice of young people being allowed to go out into the, quote, English world. You know, they'd go to bars, they might experiment with drinking or the occasional drug. Sometimes these spring breaks of sorts would last a year or two years. But in their culture, the goal was at the end of it, the young person would have essentially sowed their wild oats and be ready to really commit to the church. Ida first found out that Eli had left through word of mouth, and she was heartbroken. But she believed he would come back to her. So she dutifully waited and hoped and prayed. She believed that she was a good influence on him. And for a time she was. Sweetly, she thought she could help if he just came back. While Eli was away, he exchanged chores for room and board at two other Amish families' homes. By this time, Eli is 22. The first family were the Chups, the New Order Amish, who were more relaxed. The wife even helped Eli order non-conservative Amish clothes, like underwear. Those weren't allowed in his group because of the worldly elastic waistbands. And don't even get them started on buttons. That's a whole different thing. He was seemingly close with the family, and they even threw him a birthday party. And he made friends with outsiders, too. He hung out with a deputy sheriff named Jim Taylor of the Wayne County Sheriff's Office. And also, Eli began disappearing for a night or two and not calling and then a few days. Eli was going out more and more. And to the Amish world, that he was starting to exhibit more and more strange behavior. He still ran with a group of Amish or formerly Amish young boys, including John Yoder. So some of these guys might have been on Rumspringer, but they were still connected to their faith or they knew the rules. But Eli was starting to become the life of the party at times. Despite his normally shy nature, at the 23rd birthday of John Yoder, Eli showed up with an unforgettable gift. One that made everyone uncomfy. Eli presented John with the gift. He unwrapped it. It was a small package. And then he pulled out a box containing men's red bikini underwear. Even the outside of the box seemed X-rated 
to the conservative boys. I mean, they'd been raised without underwear of any kind, but this was shocking. Then Eli creeped everyone out even more, and he started snuggling up to John Yoder on the couch, and then he urged him to put the bikini on. But Yoder refused. He was embarrassed and confused. He said he didn't know what to make of it. He said, quote, maybe it would be okay to give something like that to a girl, but to a man? Eventually, and almost out of the blue, Eli said to the chups who he was living with, so this is after the party, apparently that went off without a hitch, um, that he was going to live with Walter and Marianne Stoll. He said it was because he wanted to watch TV and listen to the radio. But this oddly coincided with a marijuana arrest scare and a fake assault. These seem like huge things, and they are, but there's so much more coming in Eli Stutzman's story that it's not worth even going into. Just, he fakes a lot of shit, and he likes drugs. Um, Nothing wrong with marijuana. You get the point. Um, But we haven't even gotten to his first murder. I mean, death, murder, there's several... Uh, that we must go forward. So, Eli moves in with the Stoles. It goes okay. Eli was following the rules-ish, but he was still going out late at night. He wouldn't return for days. And it was starting to stress Marianne stole out. And Eli was sleeping around at this point. Allegedly, encounters with other Amish boys were frequent. And he even got an Amish girl pregnant but gave her the money for an abortion so it was silenced. Meanwhile, Marianne is growing more concerned. He's just not around and it's confusing. And according to Greg Olson's book, quote, she was worried and confused, especially when sometimes stacks of letters arrived daily. Once, she found something so disturbing and so strange that she didn't even know exactly what they were. She did know, however that they had to do with sex. She told her son, Ed, about the discovery, and from her description, he figured that his mother had run across a cache of vibrators and ticklers, but that was not all. Later, Mrs. Stoll found several magazines tucked under Stutzman's mattress. The publications shocked and puzzled her. They contained graphic pictures of men having sex with each other. In conflicting reports, One says that she never mentioned it to anyone, and another says that she confronted Eli and said that we're not having this in our house and kicked Eli out and burned the magazines. Regardless, it seems Eli was privy to Mrs. Stoll's discovery, and uh, because he felt somewhat outed, he felt the best course of action was to return home to his community and awaiting Ida Gingrich. Ida Gingrich, completely unaware of what Eli had been up to, was so excited when Eli showed up at her door. He professed his love for her and his devotion to being a good Amish husband. She was thrilled. And then they picked up where they left off. Ida had been praying that he would come back, and he did. It must have been God's will. They got married December 25th, 1975. And Ida was never more sure of his devotion, especially when one month later, they found out they were pregnant. 
September 7, 1976, she gives birth to their baby boy, who they named Danny. Life seemed perfect. They moved to a 90-acre farm after this, and they started a dairy business. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. If you're listening to this podcast, then chances are good you are a fan of The Strange, Dark, and Mysterious. And if that's true, then you're in luck. Because, once again, Mr. Ballin Podcast, Strange, Dark, and Mysterious Stories is available everywhere you get your podcasts. Each week on the Mr. Ballin Podcast, you'll hear new stories about inexplicable encounters, shocking disappearances, true crime cases, and everything in between. Like our recent episode titled White Dust. After a middle-aged couple fail to answer their daughter's messages and calls, the daughter drives the few hours to her parents' house to check on them, But after arriving and seeing both her parents' cars in the driveway, the daughter gets an uneasy feeling and just can't stomach going inside. To hear the rest of that story and hear hundreds more stories like it, follow Mr. Ballin Podcast on Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts. Prime members can listen early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Soon after, they get pregnant again. And according to the Deadly Devotion documentary, where they interview people that knew the couple, including Ida's doctor, they say they seemed so happy and they were such a wonderful family. But to those closest, it wasn't such a rosy picture. Eli was dealing in horses, trading them perhaps illegally, and this wasn't part of the plan, Ida thought. Ida, pregnant with their second baby on the way and caring for six-month-old Danny, was often left alone and with no explanation or word from Eli. And it got worse as her pregnancy progressed. Ida's mom grew concerned as she didn't want to see her daughter so sad, but she stepped back because if it was God's will, it was God's will. Meanwhile, however, Eli is putting on a show of being Mr. Right, Mr. Concerned. He even asks Ida's father, Amos, to help him build some steps to help Ida because of her heart condition. Amos had never heard of his daughter having a heart condition. Eli continues to drop this little anecdote here and there amongst several members of the community. Ida has a heart condition. She gets dizzy when she cleans the house. Huh, they think? I mean, she's she's young. This is confusing, and we've never heard of this before. But as Eli is planting the seeds of Ida's illness, he's spending more and more time away, to the point where when Ida was several months pregnant, she's visited by her parents and younger brother, and she broke out into tears when they left, and she said, Eli isn't doing very good. I don't think he loves me. The parents didn't know what to do, but her mom said that time will make it better, and she hugged her daughter and said that prayer will help. That was likely the Amish way, leave it in God's hands. 
They didn't know what else to do. They left and Ida was alone, waiting another night for Eli to come home. She was a devoted Amish wife and she was also stuck. On top of all this, the pregnant Ida then had to deal with a large storm approaching. It was July 11th, 1977. The dark sky was enveloping above them. The only people on the farm were the pregnant Ida, little Danny, and an Amish kid they had hired to help them for the summer. He was picking apples and he saw the storm approach as well. Meanwhile, Eli, Ida's husband, had taken his buggy into town on some business. Ida stayed inside as the thunder was heard booming around them. And storms like this are normal in the area, but it was best for her to stay inside. Shortly after the storm started, Eli Stutzman arrived in his buggy, dropping his reins into the mud, and he shouted to the hired kid that lightning hit the barn. Apparently he could see it from far away, who knows. The kid went to where Eli had pointed, and Eli joined him. Eli climbed up to the roof as the kid watched, and Eli kept searching for where the bolt had hit, and the kid wasn't seeing what Eli was seeing. Eli then pointed to the timber above them and said, See, that's where it is. And he kept claiming that's where the lightning had traveled, and the kid, you know, still couldn't see it. But he got some water, and... He watched Eli pour it on the problem area that was still undetectable to him. But the problem, if there was one, was solved. The family went to bed early as usual, and the kid also retired to his room. Then, around midnight, he saw a bright light outside of his window, and it awoke him, and he looked out, and flames were coming from the barn. He thought, oh my god! And he went to go wake up Eli and Ida, but they weren't there. He thought, why wouldn't they have told him the barn was on fire? He was there to help. The kid rushed outside and ran into Eli on the front porch. He told the kid to run to the neighbors, who had a phone, and have them call the fire department. According to Greg Olson's in-depth book on this case, the kid saw this as he ran for help. Quote, he ran past the south side of the barn, away from the flaming north side, his bare feet pressing the surface of the now dried dirt driveway. Over his shoulder, he saw Stutzman pull farm machinery from the barn. A box wagon, tools had already been moved. As he turned the corner where Moser Road meets the driveway, the boy saw Ida, motionless, on her back, her eyes were closed. She was very still. Stutzman just shook his head. He already knew. Quote, Go to Harley Gerber's now. Get the doctor too, Stutzman instructed. He seemed mad that I had not done what he told me, the kid said. Passing Ida again, he wondered why Stutzman hadn't mentioned that his wife had been hurt in the first place. Why was Eli Stutzman more concerned about the farm equipment than his wife? Then the crashing of splintering burning timbers and the snap of crunchy dry straw riddled the night like gunfire. The frightened kid ran as fast as he could. Ida needed help now. Across Moser Road, the sound of the fire ricocheted through an open window and woke the Snavely neighbors. Sue woke her husband Howard, 
who pulled on a pair of pants and told his wife to call the fire department. As they ran downstairs, the noise woke two of their children. Then their screen door slammed behind them, and they ran across the road toward the Amish family's front door. He assumed the Stutzmans were unaware of the fire, since he had saw no one outside. And just as he reached the porch, Stutzman came around from the other side of the barn. Had the Amish man heard him calling for them to wake up? I, he came across the street. The timing seemed so strange and remarkable. Stutzman was a fright. The bearded Amish man was frantic, disheveled, hysterical. He waved for Snavely to come over. Snavely sensed that something had happened that was terrible and bad. Eli said, we've got to get my wife out. She's trapped in the barn. Adrenaline surged through Snavely's body as he followed Stutzman to the milk house on the south side of the barn. Amish dairy farmers used little rooms like this neatly lined with clay tiles to keep milk cool and clean until haulers came to get it. Quote, we've got to get her out, Eli said. Snavely noticed some stainless steel three-gallon buckets and a milk strainer in a heap outside the door. Pausing for breath, Stutzman swung the door open and Snavely saw Ida dressed in her Amish clothes, including her small, starched black scarf. Lying on her back, her feet were next to the door, her head farther inside. The woman's pregnancy was obvious beneath her dark coat. Stutzman muttered something about a heart attack as he lifted his wife up by her underarms, and Snavely carried the woman's feet and legs. Her uncradled head hung down. The men carried her across the road to the night pasture. By then, Stutzman had calmed considerably. He was quiet and his body no longer shook in frightened spasms. On impulse, Howard Snavely reached for Ida's wrist. He detected no pulse. Stutzman, who knew mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation from his work at the hospital, did nothing. End quote. The aftermath was as confusing as the imagined burning ember. Many, including the coroner, knew the Amish to be self-sufficient and tough, and so Eli's story of Ida running to grab the milk jugs while pregnant to save their livelihood was plausible. That's a story he told many people. He also told people many different stories. But many others thought, why would you risk your baby's life for milk jugs? Regardless, Ida and the unborn child didn't deserve their fate. Ida Stutzman was dead. Their unborn baby also went with her. Danny was left without a mother. Eli, well, Eli seemed despondent and depressed for a short time. I mean, Ida's parents even moved in to help him with Danny's care and the community worried for him and offered help. But after a short time, Eli changed. He bounced back to his old ways, even getting more extreme. I mean, quite quickly, actually. He shaved his Amish beard, and then, in even a more shocking move, he outfitted the house with electricity. 
He started to place personal ads in gay magazines like The Advocate and even straighten his community's face, started throwing gay parties in his barn. It seems Eli Stutzman was thriving without his wife. And this is where we will end this episode. And though this story has been covered a bit in other media outlets, I truly learned the most about Eli Stutzman and the complexities of this case, the love triangles, the drugs, the murders, that I had to go so much deeper. So just wait, because as shady as this story is right now, it gets tragically way worse. So part two of Eli Stutzman will come next week. He is the Amish serial killer, but his case is very confusing, shady, it hits all the markers. All right. Thank you guys so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star rating and positive review on Apple Podcasts and uh, send me an email or connect with me on Instagram at 7DeadlySinnersPodcast at gmail.com. It's the first part on Instagram at 7 Podcast. And uh, yeah, I love you guys. Bye. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Seven Deadly Sinners early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen early and ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. And before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. The wait is over. So far, you're not losing. The only thing you're losing is my patience. Quickly, I see that. Ding! The queen of the courtroom is back. I didn't do anything. You wouldn't know the truth if it came up and slapped you in the face. I see he's not intimidated by anything. I can fix that. New cases. She wanted to fight me. Leave her alone. Okay, so, um... Not, this is not a so. This is a period. Classic Judy. Did you sleep with her? Yes, Your Honor. You married his cousin. His brother. That's not him. Yes, ma'am. I would make a beeline for the door. The Emmy Award-winning series returns. How did I know that? I have crystal ball in my head. It's an all-new season. It's streaming. You can say anything. (laughs) Judy Justice. Only on Freebie.